but I, I want to give each speaker enough time, so uh, I don't want to take too much time as the chair. I, I really have the easy job in this in that I just recruit my friends to actually do the work. So um, I, I'm going to play the role of uh, traffic cop, so I'll, I'll make sure that we're sort of staying on time so that everybody gets uh, uh, enough time to present their, their program. My name is Scott Carley. I'm the curator of museum services at the Alaska State Museum, and my background is in conservation. Uh, so I was a conservator in Alaska for a while, and then I took this job uh, which uh, has me doing statewide outreach or technical support for small museums in Alaska. And I really enjoy this work. I get to travel around Alaska quite a bit and go to small museums. And um, I always think that there's a lot of use for uh, tips uh, and ways to do things. Um, and so we've been trying to present this uh, as a, um, an effort of the field services um, Alliance, which is uh, which we just had our annual meeting here before um, this meeting, uh, and the Field Service Alliance is sort of a, a professional alliance of of people who do what I do, and these are my colleagues who sort of do what I do. They help uh, museums and archives and libraries in their areas. Uh, so we have four speakers today, and um, I'm going to uh, introduce them in the order that they will speak, and then. Uh, I won't reintroduce them. I can have them introduce themselves, or they can um, tell you some more about what they do. But the first speaker is going to be um, Alex Trumbull. Um, and she uh, she's listed in here as a conservation technician for the Indiana Historical Society, but she has since uh, moved to another job uh, at Urban Anthropolog Anthropology, Inc. And I'll let her explain to you what exactly she does at Urban Anthropology, Inc., because I would be interested in that as well. Uh, the second speaker is Jessica Lemming. Uh, who is a uh, preservation services librarian for, um, well, it says here Solonet, but it is now uh, merged with Palinet and Nelanet, right, um, to become Lyricist, which I think pretty soon is going to be a, a brand that we will all recognize as a purveyor of uh, good, solid information on preserving uh, archival and library-type collections. And... Um, if I didn't mention it before, Alex is going to be talking about storage supports, and Jessica is going to be talking about um, storing photos. Uh, after that, we'll have Laura Casey, uh, who is the state coordinator for museum services at the Tetanus, Texas Historical Commission, and Laura will be talking about memberships. And then uh, to round things out, Jeff Harris, who is director of uh, local history services at the Indiana Historical Society, uh, will be talking about free things, which we all like that, free. Uh, so I think we have a really good uh, uh, variety. Uh, we're going to touch on a lot of different subjects, and I'm just going to let them uh, roll with it. So starting off will be Alex. I'm going to go close the door. Hi, everyone. As Scott mentioned, I'm Alex, and um, Today I'll be, I'll be talking about the work that I did at the um, Indiana Historical Society last year, um, as well as through a volunteership at the Eidljorg Museum um, of American Indians and Western Art, where I boxed a number of collections for them. Um, but since then I've moved on to um, an urban anthropology uh, research organization in Milwaukee, um, and just for general interest, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a neighborhood association in one of Milwaukee's more working class neighborhoods, um, and what we do is um, conduct research, um, do documentaries and, and little videos um, on Milwaukee's ethnic community. 
um, and then figure out ways to build community by focusing on similarities, cultural similarities instead of differences, and um, keep building those inner city neighborhoods to be stronger places. So that's what we do there. But yeah, today I'll be talking a, a little bit about mount and box making for um, collection storage. Um, and I'll just start by giving a little outline. Um, I'll just go through some of the general standards and principles that have informed my work um, and that, um, yeah, that have informed the work at these places. Um, so just general common principles of collections care, um, assessing the object needs, um, a general do's and don'ts list for materials, um, and then going through various types of mounts and supports and boxes and enclosures that can be custom made pretty easily once you've tried it a couple times. Um, and since those are custom enclosures, um, I'll end with some really easy ways to improve storage practices in general, um, things like lining shelves with ethafoam, you know, just sort of implementing some really easy steps um, overall, and then some general resources. So, yeah, in general, your, your objective with um, building mounts and boxes for um, artifacts is to ensure the long-term preservation of the physical and chemical condition as well as the research potential of collections. Um, you want your enclosure and your support system to buffer against physical, pest, environmental, and inherent damage. Um, and inherent damage would just refer to um, if something is already cracked when it comes into the collection, um, some kind of inherent vice, if, if it's just sort of structurally unstable, you want to do what you can to um, slow the rate of degradation. And then, yeah, in terms of common principles of collections care, all your procedures should be reversible um, and you should use stable materials. One of the first things I learned um, when I started in the conservation lab at the Historical Society is that probably 95% of a conservator's job is undoing the work of previous conservators. And Scott's probably heard that. Um, and that's not because of bad practice. It's just because ideal standards change so frequently. Um, every couple years, there's, you know, the, the adhesive that you used is all of a sudden the worst thing in the world. And so you just, it's an ever-changing field, and you just have to go in knowing that. Um, so making sure that even when you're making a storage enclosure or a box, that everything is reversible, um, is really key. Um, and then you want to maintain the association of objects and their documentation. If you're taking a textile and wrapping it and putting it in new textile storage, obviously take explicit notes of where it was, where it's going, how long it was in the middle, you know, so that people don't lose things. Um, and then respecting the cultural and historical integrity of the object. Um, I've had a lot of fun thinking about uh, museum objects as material science. Um, and then as storytellers, as art, as history. Sometimes these two can conflict, especially when you're, when you're discussing preservation methods. Um, but if you keep both in mind, then you can generally come up with something. Um, and then providing support for unstable objects. Okay, so I kind of came up with a little um, mnemonic device. So you want to provide padding, accessibility, stabilization, and support for your object, um, just as a general um, overview. And then when you have an object, um, and all museums and, and historical societies have their own ways of prioritizing um, their collection in terms of which pieces should really have a custom box, which ones can sort of just be more general, um, and so that's up to you. But basically, what needs does the item have in terms of stabilization? Would it be fine with just a couple little supports around the side? Should it have its own box? Should it be covered? Um, those are questions to ask for every single one. And a lot of times it does come down to practicality and resources. And so, yeah, we'll uh, 
Um, will a framework that just supports the structure suffice, or should you go all out? Um, materials must be benign to the collection. Um, and in general, this means acid-free and inert. Um, but there are a couple general do's and don'ts. Um, and the Historical Society actually has a really cool display um, where they just sort of tacked on a wall all the don'ts, like packing peanuts, styrofoam, cardboard, particle board, tape, Elmer's glue. Um, and then the do's are acid-free tissue paper, polyethylene foam is is really versatile. That's one of my favorites. Um, muslin, cotton batting, um, and then there's there are archival pastes that you can get as well. Um, and then just in terms of debunking general myths, um, acid-free is not the way to go with every single type of collection. Um, and you might be talking about this a little more, but for photographs, for example, um, photographs require acid-neutral environments. Um, so thinking that acid-free works for every single thing is not quite true. Um, and then also, um, at, at IHS, we've encountered some smaller organizations where um, airtight sealing is a method of preservation. And, and it's a good idea to try and keep it in a microenvironment and away from the general, um, the, the outside environment. But the only material that I can think of that should pretty much always be airtight, and forgive me if I'm wrong, is, is metal because of oxidation. Paper needs to breathe. Textiles need to breathe a little bit. Um, keep them away from light and changes in temperature, but airflow is, it can be really important to maintain something. Um, and then laminating is just an absolute don't. Um, a lot of smaller groups and um, will try laminating as a way of supporting something and stabilizing it. Um, but most laminates are not archival. Um, and that seal, if there is a change in humidity, that can cause even more humidity inside the sealed package and can cause more damage. Um, and then removing things from laminates can also be a struggle. So laminating is not the way to go. Um, then as um, a few examples of custom mounts, um, stabilization and support. By stabilization, I mean um, thinking about how an object wants to sit, um, thinking about the footprint that it makes. If it's something like those moccasins, um, if they have sort of caved in a little bit, you'll want to pad them so that they're supported from the inside, otherwise you might cause further damage. Um, so they're really easy ways to just ball up tissue paper or use cotton batting and very carefully insert it um, that way. Um, general support um, for the Southwest Ceramic Collection at the Eidelgeorg. Um, most of them were supported in this type of manner where you just put them in a box and then put little um, ethafoam supports around the outside so it doesn't move. That's really easy and really fast and doesn't use that much, um, that much ethafoam. And I'll be passing around some um, examples of some of these materials in a minute. Yep. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and at the Eidelberg we used low-melt adhesive, so a glue gun. Um, some places aren't sure about off-gassing and, and about the archival quality of that glue, but standard, I'd say, I mean, I've seen that used in a ton of museums. So just a teeny bit of adhesive right onto the bottom of the box. Unless the box is small enough where you could wedge it in the corner, but yeah. Um, and this is from Logan Museum. Um, We've got a couple uh, Beloit College people in here, so um, a tiny museum at the Logan Museum uh, um, at the at Beloit College. These are bandolier bags, and as you can see, um, they're, it's flat storage. But if it's something that you have to fold, you can just sort of support the folds with again tissue paper, with ethafoam, with anything archival, so that you don't cause more creasing. 
Um, so that's a way to, again, use a tiny amount of material um, and then make all the difference in the world in terms of preservation. Every single fold has a little piece of ethical in it. And then tie-downs. Um, for really long pieces, like even pens, long spears, um, those little white blocks are ethifoam, and then they've just carved tiny little um, incisions, and then the object sits in, and then you tie it on with cotton twill tape, which is also archival, um, and that's the very best way to store these things. And for something like spears or, or arrows, I wouldn't suggest putting tissue paper over it because it might snag. Um, so these would be better in, a, in an open-air environment and then more tie-downs. And here you can also see an example of um, a box where someone has put several um, drawers or shelves within the box. Um, and that's a pretty easy procedure. Um, I won't be focusing on that too much, but um, you, know, you should never stack objects when you're storing them, but this is a really easy way to um, use less space and still have more in a box. And I'm thinking that's probably chloroplast or some other kind of board. Um, there's several types of acid-free board that you can use um, that I'll be passing around as well. And they're easily cuttable with a box cutter. And these are cavity mounts are some of my favorites to make. Um, this is a Northwest Coast um, spoon collection. And as you can see, they all have supports. Um, the ethafoam has been carved in, and then the spoon just sits in there. And if you can tell, they actually have some um, mylar, some kind of plastic covering. This is more for show, um, to hold the pieces in place. But if you're just keeping these in a drawer, just having some kind of enclosure where the spoon won't be rolling around in the drawer every time you open it is ideal. Because um, a lot of museums have lots of small pieces, and they have to put them in drawers because they don't have um, more room for them. And that's fine, but just making sure that they're not rolling around either by doing some little custom cavity enclosure or just by putting tissue paper around so that they stay still is perfect. And here's one that I made at the Historical Society. This is a little scale. Um, and so I just did little, um, just cut out areas for the pieces to sit so that nothing was being pulled, nothing was resting in a way that was um, sort of pressure on it. And then on the bottom, you see all the little weight pieces. Um, I cut little teeny enclosures in another piece of ethafoam, lodged them in there, and then sealed it in a polyethylene bag so that the oxidation wouldn't take place. Um, and if had this been a really ideal situation, I would have sealed the, the actual weight as well. Um, and that's a blue board box, um, an ethafoam. And then on the bottom, you see two twill tape pieces that I just wrapped around and kind of tucked in to keep the thing in place. Um, okay, and then for textile storage, sometimes you'll come across handkerchiefs or, or little pieces like that. Um, if you can't store them flat, um, then rolled storage is ideal, or the, the picture you saw before where you just pad the folds. Um, and I just rolled a piece of um, ethafoam, piece like this, like a quarter inch ethafoam. You can roll it and then tie it with twill tape and then just roll the piece into it. And then there's tissue paper below it and tie it. And then you won't cause creases. The thing is, you know, supported and all that. And it's a good way of not taking up that much room. And this is a really involved enclosure that I found. Um, I put a picture of it in because it's a drop front box. Um, so all sides of this box just open up so you don't have to reach in and possibly harm the object by trying to get out of 
trying to get it out of this really tall box. Um, so there are easy ways of, I think that's probably cotton batting with Tyvek around it. Um, the object is supported and you can easily remove it from the box. Okay, and then if, um, if there are any left, I had some handouts, um, just the template that I used at the Idle Jorg to make very simple boxes for objects. Tried to make it as step-by-step -step as possible. Um, so blue board is my favorite material to use. Um, it's basically archival cardboard, um, corrugate board. And so you get it in huge pieces, and then you would just cut it so that the object, this is the base right here, so that you can reach in easily and get the object out. You don't want the object to fit really snugly because you have to be able to reach your hands in. So the object would go here, and then you'd cut it out, as, as mentioned on those forms, and then you'd score the sides so that they fold, and then it just sort of pops right up and does that. And then you just secure the tides or the, the sides. Um, and on those handouts, I listed um, these metal prongs that you can get at Staples. Um, they're called metal fasteners. Um, at IHS, we just use twill tape, but the metal fasteners are a lot easier. You just poke them through, close it, and after you've made a couple, they, they don't take more than like 15 minutes to make one box. Um, I can pass this around if you guys want to take a look. And so those are the boxes that we use for the entire ceramic collection and then also for their Inuit soapstone collection. Okay. And I'll also pass around before I get to this some really basic mounts that I've made. Um, this is for a, a, um, a cloth hat, so a hat that would fold in on itself. It's two... two pieces of blue board that you that I've cut to form the shape of the hat. And in this case, I lined them with the really thin ethafoam. You can just, I just glued it down with the same low melt adhesive. Um, and then it just fits together really easily. And there you go. And so it maintains the shape of the hat, really easy to make and doesn't take too much. Um, and at the idle jerk also, um, to support the ceramic pieces and the um, Inuit soapstone in some cases, we used this, which is, it's called tri-rod ethafoam, um, triangular shape. You can just cut little pieces off and then glue them down and it holds the piece in. Um, if it's a really tall piece, you might need a little more, but in most cases, this stuff is wonderful. And it comes probably more than this, but this is two sizes. So, I mean, these are not cheap materials, but they're ones that you can, in some cases, reuse a little bit, and um, you can make them stretch, um, especially for little mounts. So, for those collections that you can't do custom enclosures for, lining the shelves with ethafoam is probably the best thing that you could do in terms of a general collection practice. Not only does it cushion, but it provides a buffer from the object to whatever the shelves are. In a lot of cases, these aren't, um, these are very acidic wooden shelves or just shelves that have some kind of paint on them. You need to provide a buffer. 
And then, as I mentioned before, just reducing mobility of small, loose pieces. Um, if they're rolling around in the shelves, if, if you have to kind of sort through them to get to something else, that can cause a lot of damage. So whatever you can do with tissue paper or cotton batting just to reduce the mobility and keep them still is ideal. And then just things like dust covers for furniture in large pieces, muslin sheets, tissue paper again, um, polyethylene plastic sheeting can do a world of difference. And then measures to limit handling by personnel. Um, a lot of places will have photographs or diagrams of the object on the outside of the box. So you can walk by and say, okay, that's right there. You don't necessarily have to open the box, look through, pick it up, make sure the number is right. Um, and also making sure that the catalog number list is easily visible. Because um, handling by personnel, especially in small institutions where there might be a lot of interns, a lot of volunteers, a lot of work study, um, with less training, um, that's going to be key. So then some of the main resources we've used at the um, Indiana Historical Society and the Idle Jorg are university products, um, conservation resources, Gaylord, they provide all the ethical and things like that, um, archive art, and then my absolute Bible. Um, this is the book we used at, at Beloit College as well, The New Museum Registration Methods. It's 1998, so it's a little older, but it has every single thing. Um, I don't think it has templates for box construction, but it's like the absolute um, introduction to any collection practice you might be interested in. Um, and then another tool, this is a micro spatula. I can pass this around too. This is a conservator's best friend um, and any mount maker's best friend um, because you can use it to, let's see. Um, if you have a piece that has a very, very um, unstable surface or if it's painted and you're, you're worried about, um, about it rubbing against the ethophone, you can use this material, which is Tyvek, um, especially after you wash it. I'll pass it around. You'll see it's incredibly soft, and so it provides less abrasion. And then you can um, put it over the Tyvek and kind of tuck it in using a tool like this. So I'll pass these around. For soapstone, for example, which is, I mean, you can even just think about scratching it. And, okay, and it'll scratch. So for very, very um, fragile materials, that's a really good thing. And then local resources, um, if you're in the Indiana area, area um, some people to contact if you have questions um, in the different object areas. And I'd be happy to send this to anyone if you didn't catch this info. And then, yeah, there's my info. But any questions are afterward? Yeah, thank you. Okay. We'll have, we'll have a couple of questions right now, and then we'll move on to our next speaker. Great. So, anybody got a quick question? I know that was really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, to prevent oxidation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll field that question. Because there is a lot of... There is a lot of 
uh, concern about putting things in plastic bags. And I've, you know, I've been working in the museum field for 20 years, and uh, if, as long as your collection is not in a damp or in a basement or it hasn't been just delivered by somebody or something, if it's in an interior space that is, is somewhat climate controlled, like heated, let's say, in the wintertime, the humidity is so low that you're not going to be trapping any humidity in that bag. If it's the summer and you don't have a climate controlled um, museum or collections area, which you should, but if you don't, and you have the windows open, it's possible that you would be um, trapping some moisture in there. But in general, the humidity in an interior space that is somewhat climate controlled, heated in the winter and air conditioned in the summer, um, won't have enough humidity in the air to be trapped in the bag. Just to kind of add to that, I think too, it depends on where the matter, where it's come from. Certainly does relative to absorbing a regular ground moisture for a long period of time. Probably not with the silverers. Those you probably do not want to see because that, that water that's been sucked up into that projector for the last 150 years is going to be trapped inside that glass. Okay. Yeah. So it depends on what the metals have been exposed to in its history. That makes sense. Yeah, and most of the pieces at the Historical Society were coins or medals, badges, things like that. So, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, last question right here. Acid neutral, yeah. So, how That is the next, that. yeah, that's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Perfect segue. Yeah. What about large textiles like Those, um, if you can't store them flat or sort of folded with the supports and all the, um, all the sides, I would suggest rolling them. Um, you can get um, textile. What are they called? Rolling. Rolling tubes. Yeah, rolling tubes. Rolling tubes. Yeah, or or I mean, if if you can't, um, those are pretty expensive. So you could use regular ones, and then again, put a buffer of some kind, acid-free, and then roll them. Just anything that that helps stop creasing would be. Do you have hours And that's a really quick solution for that. And um, they also have textile storage boxes, ways to cover them, but the folds is most important. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to see such a large crowd here. Um, my name is Jessica Lemming. I'm a lyricist, preservation services librarian. And um, for y'all who have not heard of lyricists, we are a combination of legacy uh, Solonet Southeastern Libraries Network and Palinet, which was more in the kind of mid um, Atlantic states, um, and soon Nellinet, so the northeastern states. So we'll be a kind of a consortial group of um, probably over like 22 different states. Um, but our preservation, preservation services side, just to tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do, um, we do a wide variety of education and training classes. We have, you know, tons ranging in the preservation services from building custom enclosures and book repair to classes on preservation of photos, which I'm going to be talking about, um, digitization, environmental monitoring, audiovisual materials, pretty much the whole gamut of preservation. Um, and because we are funded in part by um, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Division of Preservation Access, you do not have to be a member to use our services or to take our classes. So you can feel free to give me a call at any time with any of your 
wild preservation questions, and I will do my best um, to answer them or to refer you to somebody who can answer your questions. We also have environmental monitoring equipment, light meters that are available for loan that we will loan for free to you if you're concerned about such things, which pretty much everybody probably in this room is <laughs> or should be, um, and it's just the cost of return shipping to you. We have a lot of variety of leaflets on our website, lyricist.org slash preservation, variety of preservation topics that are available for you to use. Um, we offer 24-hour disaster assistance, so my little phone here. If you have late mold outbreak, anything that's happening, um, and it usually always happens on a Saturday, right? <laughs> when nobody's there or nobody's around to do anything, well, you can give us a call and we'll do our best to find you with a good recovery vendor, whatever you need. Um, we'll kind of help walk you along and then we'll tell you, you need to have a disaster plan. So <laughs> we'll do everything there. And we also do a wide variety of consulting. Um, and most of that on my end is like preservation needs assessments, which are similar to the CAP grants. So, um, but we do a little bit of everything, and we're also on Facebook, so you can join us on Facebook and find out other erroneous information about preservation that I'll post there. Um, we also have a booth um, up in the vendor area, so afterwards, if you do have any questions or about anything, you can feel free to come by and ask me or my colleague Tom Clarison. So. Um, Thank you for the <laughs> heritage preservation uh, folks, but I just wanted to kind of frame what I was going to talk about today in the state of our collections. And the Heritage Health Index was um, conceived by Heritage Preservation in partnership with the IMLS. And this was the, kind of the first, is everybody familiar with this? Kind of, yeah, yeah, I see some heads nodding. This survey found over 4.8 billion artifacts held by 30,000 libraries, historical societies, libraries, museums, scientific research collections, archaeological repositories in the United States. And it found a lot of stuff that I think a lot of people were shocked and, you know, it's really kind of driven people to action. But, um, you know, 26% of these collecting institutions had no environmental controls to protect their collections from damaging effects, temperature, humidity, and light. 65% um, reported damage, some sort of damage, due to improper storage of their collections. Um, Let's see. Well, even within the environmental controls, like around 50 to 60 percent had their collections damaged by light or had their collections damaged by moisture. Eighty percent of the collection institutions reported they had no emergency plan other than maybe a staff phone tree, which don't panic if you don't have one, but, you know, now make, you know, a, a proactive response to that and, you know, start looking into this and lyricists can help you get a more robust plan that does include your collections. And also that they didn't have any staff dedicated to take care of these materials, to seek out new boxing, to seek out, you know, wondering should our disaster plan include collections in it, which it should. Um, but so this is shocking information, but I just want to talk to you today about um, photographs. And I think the first thing that we could all, and this is top 10, which is just a random number out there in space. It could be the top 72, it could be the top 586 um, things to take care of photographs because they are very complex. Um, Image Permanence Institute, which I'll probably mention as the IPI quite a few times, they really have the most 
awesome resources when it comes to photos, and it will make you a photo junkie if you are not one already about how interesting photos are. But they are very structurally complex things. They are not just the one piece of paper with maybe some toner on it, you know, like a Xerox. If we look at the photo on your left, that's an old salted paper print. We're kind of looking at it, you know, microscopically, the cross section. <coughs> of a photo here where we might have some, you know, silver, you know, soaked into a piece of paper versus, you know, maybe a more a contemporary print where we might have like a paper layer. We also have a layer that's like an opacifier, you know, just like how white the screen is and it gives like a nice reflection of an image such as a, a layer that we'll talk about in a moment. And then you can see kind of even microscopically how thick that paper is and how thin that final image layer that's it. That's where all of the record of our information is laying. So you have an idea how delicate and dainty these things can be. But they're also very complex, and they might have other backing layers involved as well. Okay, So we're not just talking about you know the, just kind of a singular object. Like many museum objects, we're talking about it as a, as a whole entity and a whole being. And sometimes there's uh, conflicting <laughs> preservation issues in there. So if we take like a little step further and look at um, photographs and the layers and how they're constructed. We have that support, which is you know basically like the canvas of the image. But supports and photographs, what could they be? They could be paper, they could be glass, they could be tin, tin types. They could be you know some sort of copper plating, like early daguerreotypes. Um, glass, you know, could be uh, amber types. It could be some gla glass plate negative. Supports could also be plastics, early plastic products, cellulose nitrate, you know, the film base that, you know, if you heard of spontaneous combustion of film, <laughs> cellulose acetate, which we probably, a lot of us, if we do have um, 20th century collections, probably own some of that material. Um, and nowadays, a lot of paper might be completely polyester. So it might be a photographic kind of paper base, but it might be something that's a non-paper base. So we have a wide variety of those supports. We have a wide variety of binders. The emulsion layer could be colloidian, could be like an old albumin prints that are commonly mounted on like carte de visite or the small calling cards. We have that more contemporary, we have gelatin. So there's a whole slew there, right? You know, so if you're trying to think of how many different variations we could have going on here, we have the final image material. That could be silver, it could be platinum, it could be iron compounds in the form of cyanotypes. It could be um, a variety of contemporary dyes or pigments in, uh, in color photography. And then commonly, um, you know, especially maybe like in 20th century, um, is the bridal layer. And this layer could be a gelat opacified gelatin or an opacified polyester material that was kind of provides that nice clean, smooth ground for the image to be projected against. Mid-century, all of those things were textured. You know, so all of the photos of us as children or of our parents with that nice kind of linen look. You know, it's not anything but a silver gelatin print, but that has been impressed. Sometimes it could be dyed. And then we have, let's see, where have we gotten to? And then we have other layers. Early photographs probably had some sort of varnish put on it because they noticed how the image would oxidize or it would be easily scratched. So early photographers would cover it with like any sorts of beeswax, resin, varnishes, or contemporary, those are um, maybe polyester or anti-static layers. So, okay, 
got tons of stuff going on here. And unfortunately, like Alex mentioned, they are subject to inherent vice. And, you know, and this is just kind of a general term, but it really does refer to photographs um, because all of our photographs have all of those potential different components, and all those components do deteriorate over time, and each one is subject to its own kind of fluctuating um, with, you know, temperature and relative humidity. So here's a glass plate, you know, as an example. This probably did not live in a happy environment for a while. So we have our glass plate, which is fairly, you know, kind of neutral maybe. And then we have an emulsion layer that probably was thrown in a basement or maybe in an attic somewhere, and that gelatin or whatever might be that emulsion layer has gotten humid, it's kind of swollen up, then it's gotten dry, and then it, you know, so we have these kind of conflicting layers of materials in each one because they are responding to it itself and within, you know, it kind of sets up these opportunities for damage to happen. And because of that layered uh, structure, photographs are very subject to this um, instability among its components. But environment really is the thing that whenever you take a preservation class, and especially when it comes to photos and lots of materials, environment is the key. And it really is the least expensive per item preservation strategy and the single most effective way of extending life of almost any collection. But that really does go for um, photographs as well. Um, temperature and relative humidity are the most obvious ones to control. That being said, <laughs> those might not be the easiest things to control because everybody that I talk to has some issue with their systems people controlling their HVAC systems. Um, but so you got to start baking those people cookies and telling them about the set points that you need to have for your collections and why stability and temperature and relative humidity are so important. But um, temperature, you know, that accelerates deterioration by increasing the speed of chemical reactions. I mean, it's just basically simple science. Water, you know, that, that it's a chemical, it's a chemical reactant, and it will react, you know, in high levels, um, high relative humidity will um, basically kind of move along those chemical reactions to a point where it will accelerate the deterioration of the materials. But we also have, especially with photos, we have light, issues of light damage that needs to be controlled and that you should be concerned about when you're dealing with those materials. Good housekeeping practices, um, you know, and, and proper storage techniques, um, tracking insects and pests, practicing integrated pest management. Wherever you work, you know, making sure that the areas in the storage areas where you're storing materials are kept tidy, no food, no drink. Um, mold being very vigilant about monitoring temperature and rel relative humidity because those are the major contributions of, of mold, not having control of those two. But if you do have it, what do you do about it? Um, and also atmospheric pollutants with anything to new contemporary like inkjet prints can be a big player in the deterioration of photographic materials. That being said, keep in mind that when it does come to photos, they are very sensitive, and light damage is cumulative and irreversible, meaning that you can't take it back. Once it's done, it's a done deal. You know, you can't hide it in the dark, you know, for 10 years and expect it to, like, come back to life. <laughs> um, but so the best rules, keep out of direct, even undirect sunlight. Use UV filtering glass, um, plexiglass, or glazing whenever you can. There's even different types of bulb, bulb covers you can buy for in your storage areas or in your viewing areas that you can purchase to sleeve your fluorescent lights. 
don't keep your originals on permanent display. They should never be on permanent display. They could potentially be on rotating display, but there's a whole set of standards, and Lyrsis has a, a lighting um, leaflet that talks about you know, acceptable levels and acceptable conditions of, of light for display of photographs, um, and you're welcome to borrow our light meter to check it out. Um, to see how much exposure your photos are getting. So um, I think if you're following those and just kind of keeping these top four in mind, but then definitely borrow a light meter, make sure that where, wherever you're displaying your materials, especially if they are the original materials and you're not producing surrogates, um, that you're following acceptable conditions. So know your materials. When you are purchasing materials, you know, we all have heard the term archival, and I'm sure whenever we talk about archival material, we're talking about it within a realm of standards <laughs> and from reputable vendors that we buy from. Archival in and of itself has absolutely no standards tied to it. So you really should be aware that when you go into like the, the Michaels or the Hobby Lobby or any place like that and you go to buy materials, I mean, they sell archival glue sticks and archival this, archival that. I mean, they'll put that and photo safe on just about anything to get consumers that are concerned about those materials to, to buy those products. And especially if they're not coming from people like the, the list that Alex provided and we have a vendor database on our Lyricist site of the vendors that work with libraries, work with archives, work with museums, work with all of those people that, and they're concerned too. All of those vendors are very, very good, but make sure you're buying from them. And also for photographs, this is the, the standard that you need to be looking for, is the PAT test, the photographic activity test. There's lots of places that sell things that have been under a photographic activity test, but they might not mention it, or they might not put it, you know, like as a little, they might not say, passed, PAT on it. But it's something that, um, but you should look for. I think I've seen it in the Gaylord catalog, but there might other be, be other places. But before you buy something, before you buy an enclosure for your photographs, call them up and ask them. <laughs> if they're saying, huh, what's, what's Pat? What is that? Well, then, you know, that's like a little shining beacon that you go somewhere else. <laughs> but just be careful. And here's like a little, this is kind of like the jig. And it's basically they put the material, and this could apply to adhesives. It could be, apply to polyester or plastics. It can apply to paper. It can, anything that could enclose a photograph can be PAT tested. And it's basically pressure cooks at like 86% humidity and like 150 degrees. Pressure cooks those materials with very sensitive detector. Um, materials for, I don't, I'm not sure how long they do this, but this is done by the IPI. And essentially you could get any material tested through the IPI for the photographic activity test. So, And also um, this concept of layers of protection. So once you buy your PAT tested um, materials for your photographs, um, you don't have to feel like just because you don't have control of your HVAC that all is lost because a lot can be done by proper sleeving, foldering, boxing, you know, and kind of the overall storage environment. Um, you know, the, the boxing and kind of that multi-step type storage has been used by the archival community for many, many years, but it really is very, very helpful because if you've got some crazy fluctuating temperature humidity, even in the room, it's gonna take a while for all of those fluctuations to kind of seep through a 60-point board, <laughs> and then through the folders. So kind of the more mass that you're building around an object can really help buffer that, you know, that 
crazy environment that you can't control or you haven't baked enough cookies for the guy that runs the HVAC, you know, to, to work with you. Um, but, you know, photos typically are sleeved. There's benefits to plastic like polyester um, family photo sleeves, you know, because people can view them without having to physically remove them, like if you had them in paper sleeves. Um, but, you know, paper is probably twice as cheap as plastic. So it all depends on how much money you have. But the PAT tested materials could be, um, yeah, paper, plastic. Typically those are um, boxed in folders, and the folders um, having some sort of material. I mean, it could even be epifoam or any sort of corrugated cardboard to protect those folders from slumping when they're being stored. If you have um, photos that are on, like, you know, heavy cards or maybe oversized, you can folder those and um, store them with like-sized materials flat in boxes. So there's a variety of ways you can go about that. And for, um, for film and early plastics like cellulose acetate, I think, has everybody been in a library archives or even maybe in your own collection and smelled that nice little vinegary, that really pungent, stinky smell? Well, that's the smell of inherent vice <laughs> right there. If you can't ever put like a name to a smell, that's it. Um, and it's primor primarily those materials in our collections would probably be cellulose acetate. And that was introduced in 34, a safety film. But it can be um, amateur um, movie film and roll and cut sheet film anywhere from this time, even through the 80s, and microfilm as well. Um, and that when it's in the presence of those accelerated environments with high temperature, high relative humidity, it will cause these materials to start breaking down. Eventually you'll get negatives that look very much like this where you get that heavy channeling because that cellulose acetate is kind of producing acetic acid, giving that off and the substrate is shrinking. So then you have that buckling of the emulsion going on. Um, the Image Permanence Institute sells these AD strips, which in a nutshell kind of give you um, a little snapshot on how quickly your materials are deteriorating by a color ranking scale in these little indicator strips. If you find that your materials are going downhill quick with those <laughs> and they're reeking, but they're still in okay shape, but you don't have the money to reformat, you might want to consider cold storage because, you know, just how we preserve food by freezing and refrigerating it, you can do that with some of your film materials. It has to be done in a specific way, but I think it's much smarter than people waiting another 10 years for their materials to completely fall apart and then not having anything to potentially reformat. Another cold storage option, and here's like a little list, and these are kind of the set points set by the IPI over what are the happy, you know, what's the happy environment for cellulose acetate materials, 35, color 14 degrees Fahrenheit. For color prints, you can see how low that is versus how we probably are all storing our own color prints. Mm -hmm. um, and evidence of my uh, childhood prints from you know the, the 70s and they're all pink. Well, that's just temperature and humidity. That's not even light, but that's just a fading inherent vice of color photographs is, is fading in, in the dark and of course they can fade in the light as well. So general rules on uh, care and handling. Unless you've been trained to deal with photos, don't try to do anything to them, please. <laughs> Other than like a nice cursory brush with a soft, you know, brush. Because I've heard so many people contact me and they ask me, you know, well, I deacidified my photos. 
you know, I use that stuff, that spray, you know, and sprayed it on there. Well, that's not what it was meant for. You know, if you're not sure what you're doing, you can do a lot more harm than you can good trying to care for your materials. With photos, you should just be sleeving, foldering, boxing, ta-da. If you have some um, major issue, pressing issue with, you know, something that maybe like one of those panoramic photos that's so tightly curled, don't push it, you know, don't try to flatten it, you know, by slamming bricks on it because you'll end up with 16 little pieces instead of one whole thing. If you contact a conservator, they could humidify and flatten that for you. Um, so the AIC has a great listing. There might also be some regional people that you might know that could be um, skilled to do that. Also with cleaning the emulsion, there are contemporary, by, you know, some reputable vendors sell some photo cleaning sprays, you know, that's actually some sort of liquid spray that you wipe off. But that might be for contemporary photographs, but it's not for old albumin photographs. It's not for any sort of photographs with dirt or mold on it where hosing some liquid and rubbing it with a cloth is the worst thing you can possibly do. Um, if you do mark, have to mark the backs of your photos. Pencil, light pressure, never use any sort of permanent inks because over time those things can stain all the way through the back of a photo. Um, if you have scrapbooks where photos are touching each other, you can buy acid-free, acid-neutral um, interleaving papers that are specifically to use with silver gelatin photographs. And also keep in mind that people love photos because they are, I mean, they're intriguing, they're beautiful, they're very interesting, but if you're working in a small, small historical society or genealogical and even all different types of special collections and archives, this is one of the highest areas of theft because people will see these things, they fall in love with them, they might even be related to some of these people, you know, and people feel privileged that they need to be the caretakers of their own information. <laughs> and so if you do have photos, you know, make sure that there's a staff member present. Make sure that you're keeping a very watchful eye on how, if you're presenting original materials to people that are coming in your doors, I would always say, if you are letting people, you know, look through your archives, you know, you keep, um, if you have photos like that, that you'd keep an access copy. And if they really needed to see the original, then you could do that, but un only under watchful eyes of, of, uh, of a staff or an employee. Okay, great. Oh, this is, this is perfect. Okay. So um, another thing you can do for preservation of photographs is employ that scan once methodology. Many institutions use this. It not only prevents overhandling, um, but being aware of you know best or ideal practices and standards for imaging before on embarking on digital projects, it greatly resource lowers the resources that you're spending on this, um, and it also does would potentially increase that longevity of the digital object. Um, there's tons of great sites. I have. This should be in the back of the room if you don't have it. But there's a lot of good sites on here. I've produced like a little leaflet, even $30 off a lyricist class if you choose to, to take one. But um, scanning once, you know, when, we never have time to go back in any of our roles. Whatever we do, there's probably ne never any time to go back and do anything a second time. So doing this is, is really great, especially for original photos. Okay, last two things. Disaster plans. I won't even ask, but you should have one. <laughs> Lyricist teaches classes, and we have a ton of free resources available on our website for developing disaster plans. Also make sure it specifically mentions photographs, because photographs are completely different than books and other archival materials when it comes to if a photo gets wet, what do you do with it, versus or you have a glass plate negative that gets wet versus if you have a book. Two different animals. No, um, CCAHA 
NEDCC also has really wonderful things along with the um, Image Permanence Institute on recovery um, and salvage of photographic collections. And also know your recovery vendors. Local places probably are not the people you want to go to when it comes to your collections. So know who the good vendors are that have the infrastructure and have the experience to recover the valuable um, materials that your institution possesses. And finally, promote preservation. This could be through good use and handling and training policies that you have in your institution. It could be through exhibits. So here's um, photographic surrogates, you know, kind of nice like little montages that do tell a really wonderful story. The Georgia Archives, they don't allow any of their materials unless it's under very, very specific conditions. But this is a really great thing to give people ideas of what is part of that history and what is in their collection. And also, um, we do provide assistance on a lot of different grants, but investigate grants. There's grants out there for storage and housing, conservation, needs assessments, disaster planning through the NEH, IMLS, and through your local state record and advisory board. There's a ton of stuff out there. Um, and you can let Lyricists help you with that. If you do have any questions, I'll be at upstairs booth today and uh, tomorrow morning. So come by and introduce yourself. Okay. Is that good? That Thanks. Um, and I'm afraid you will have to um, see her at her booth and ask any questions. <laughs> Sorry, whatever. She, she went over a little bit, so it gets back on track. We're going to go right into uh, Laura Davies. Hi, everybody. Perfect. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Casey, the state coordinator for the Museum Services Program at the Texas Historical Commission. And um, what does that mean? <laughs> Essentially, um, we provide consultations and assistance and uh, training uh, and workshops to mostly uh, small museums uh, throughout, uh, throughout Texas. And I should say small history museums. We do focus on the history museums as well. Uh, you can consider me, I guess, your intermission today. I'm not talking about anything collections. I don't have a PowerPoint and I don't have a handout. So um, I'm, I'm completely different uh, than all the other speakers here today. But hopefully um, I'm going to talk about something that, um, that, uh, that will be of interest to you. Um, talked a lot about memberships, or I've been seeing a lot of information about memberships uh, in the last year or so, and are they profitable? How do you make them profitable? Do you need a membership? Do you not need memberships? You know, all these kinds of things kind of flying about. And um, I'm not going to tell you what a good membership program is, or if you should have one, or if you shouldn't have one. Uh, you have to measure success and, and what you want to get out of a, a membership program on your own. But I am going to go through some of the, some of the pros and, and cons and share with you a good evaluation tool and also share with you a, a story about um, my first membership experience uh, when I was uh, when I was just a, a year out of grad school in my first full-time position so it was a, a lesson learned early um, but first I thought I'd start off just to ask a few questions how many of you are um, with organizations that have membership programs okay um, and how many of you would say that those are successful membership programs? A little bit less, uh, some, some fewer. Okay, okay. And so for those of you who, who did even reluctantly say, well, it's kind of successful, um, what, what to you is, what makes that a successful program? What makes it successful for your, for your organization? There's no right or wrong answers here, so it's... 
Bring some money. Okay. And that's what a lot of people will say. They do it for the money. Why, why else do you have it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody else? Sure. Yeah. Community resource. If you didn't hear that. Um, potential donors. Absolutely. Yeah. Thinking down, thinking down the line. Um, and for those of you who um, didn't raise your hand, so you, you don't have one, are you thinking, is anyone out there thinking of starting a membership program? Good. Okay. Um, and so, the, oh, the, and this is for, for everybody. If you're thinking about it, if you have it, how many of you know the, the true cost of your membership program? You figured in, you figured in staff time, you figured in volunteer time, you figured in all the direct costs, you figured in all the indirect costs. How many of you really know the, the true cost of your membership program? One kind of. <laughs> great, great. There, there is. There's a lot of money that's put into that. And um, I was reading something, and I'll, I'll probably say this again later, but I was reading something when, when doing a little reading for this session. Um, and to really have a successful membership program for monetary purposes, you need to be looking at um, bringing in two to three times uh, the amount um, that you're spending on your membership program. So that's, that's a lot of money uh, that we're talking about that you need to be bringing back in in order to really really have it even out with um, with everything all the time and everything that you put into it. So there are a lot of pros and cons, like I said, and it's been kind of hotly debated here, and maybe it's always hotly debated uh, to have membership programs or not. But I know um, even uh, 14, 15 years ago when I was just starting out, uh, every it seemed like every, um, every uh, small historical society, at least, uh, where I was working at the time, which was the suburban Chicago area, had a had a membership program, um, and all the memberships ranged somewhere between twenty five to thirty five dollars uh, a year for individual memberships. And I remember thinking at the time, "Huh, I wonder, wonder how how are we making a profit on this? You know, how are we, are we really making a profit?" Um, so again, you know, no one can tell you if this is if, if it's it's if it's right for you. Uh, you have to kind of weigh all your costs and everything. But I mean, if you just think about it logically. Um, Twenty-five or thirty-five dollars a year, which still a lot of my museums in Texas—that's still what they're charging. Some of them even less for membership. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way that's covering your. That's covering all your costs. So, um, as I uh, said, I'm not really going to talk about you know how you go about a membership. Um, ASLH does have a good leaflet here. Uh, membership matters. Does it's got some good information in here about membership programs. The one thing that did strike me though about this um, about uh, this leaflet is that um, it really presupposes you to be a larger institution and having some staff to, to help you with this. Uh, and so um, I, I didn't see a lot out there that really spoke directly to smaller museums and smaller historical organizations uh, that want to do memberships and kind of some, some of the unique um, problems and 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 things you run into when you're trying to do it on, on, a, on a smaller basis with limited staff or or all volunteers. So um, those are some things then that you need to take into consideration um, as well. So just um, some of the pros of a membership program uh, that we've already some some we've already. Um, We've already touched on, but it's it's a built-in audience. It's kind of your primary audience. These are these are people who are really interested in what you're doing. Um, you're not going to really probably not going to have to um, do a, a lot of 
repeat marketing uh, to them to get them to come to programs and and support you. So these are people uh, who who like what you do and and are supporting uh, what it is that your organization does. You're more likely to get uh, volunteers and board members and donors from a membership group um, that, because, again, they are invested in what it is that, that you're doing with your organization. Um, good source of, of income. Um, donors, as Jeff mentioned, but also earned income. If you have some kind of gift shop, if you do rentals, I know even small sites do a lot of uh, rental for, for some earned income. Um, and so your your members are going to be this is you know may maybe the first uh, place they come to to look if they're doing if they need some kind of rental space um, other purchases that that your organization uh, may may provide whether it be you know cards or mugs or t-shirts or whatever it is that you, that you might have um, they might be more or probably going to be more likely to to make those purchases they're kind of your built-in cheerleading section you know they're always going to hopefully um, to, um, be advocates to the public Public for your organization. Um, this is perhaps a, li- a little morbid, but um, prospects for some planned giving and some major gifts, uh, thinking down the road uh, for people. Um, I always thought that was a little, I don't know, something <laughs> always struck me wrong about that, but, it, but it's a big thing uh, to do. So thinking about plan, planned gifts. And, you know, depending on who is in your membership, there can be some political power that goes along with that. I know in Texas, um, we only have a legislative session every two years. And whenever the legislative session is on, I get lots of phone calls from lots of state senators and representative offices um, asking me about, uh, okay, what, what does it mean to start a museum? And I've got this constituent who wants this and, you know, what are we talking about here? Is there somebody else in the state that's doing this? They say not. And so it's a lot of, you know, information gathering. And I don't know how it is in, in other states, but um, but some somehow, I mean, there, there are a lot of requests um, every two years in Texas for state funding for a lot of new museums. And so we always get a lot of phone calls about that. And sometimes some of it goes through. So there is some political power there um, as well that can be that can be very useful. Um, are there any any pros uh, that we haven't covered um, that that somebody feels really strong about that I've I've skipped over or we didn't somebody didn't shout out before? Okay, well, some of the cons of uh, of a membership program, as I as I said, you really have to know what this program actually costs and. Um, you know, it's easy to say, well, yeah, I know, I know we spend, we spend uh, a good amount of staff time on. Well, exactly how much staff time, um, what staff members, what are the hours, what's their hourly rate, um, volunteer time, how many volunteers, how many hours are the volunteers spending on this? Um, membership benefits. This is something that you have to take into consideration. Um, you know, Member memberships, um, it, it's not fundraising. Memberships want your members want something in return. So whether you're giving them a break on um, a break on admission or um, discount in the gift shop or or any of those things, you have to take those costs that you're you're giving up. Um, you have to take that into consideration as well. And then of course all your actual costs, um, postage, any direct mail pieces, any graphic designing for that, printing, all those kinds of costs. Um, so and then like I said, you need to be planning for two to three times. Um, that's that's what I read one place. Um, two to three times 
what that total cost is in order to make it um, a successful membership program monetarily for it to for it to actually be bringing you uh, some money. Um, you also um, need to make sure that you are providing some kind of benefits uh, to to your membership because, like I said, it's not fundraising. They're not the it's not the same thing. Your your members are, are wanting something uh, for their membership. Um, you have to keep in mind that this membership drive is something, and these costs associated with it, um, this is something you have to do every year. This isn't something that you can just do when you feel like it or when you have enough money to do it. Um, a successful membership program, you know, this is something that happens every year. You're always having to, to do a membership drive and cultivate and grow your membership. Um, there are companies out there that do this, but it's pretty expensive uh, to have them do this. And at least most of the museums that, um, that I work with, there's, there's no way they can they can um, they could afford that. Uh, you need to know what the demographics of your community are. Uh, can they afford to be members of your organization? Is membership of your organization even filling a need for your community? And you need to know the other organizations that are near you. Um, who who are you competing against? What you know? What are they offering? Do they have a, a membership? Let's say you're in a suburban area and um, you're thinking, oh, okay, we'll we'll do a membership because you know the the museum down the road does it, and it's it's a pretty successful program. Well, but to people, if they aren't really, they're not, um, you know, if they're, this is kind of a hobby, you know, history is, is a hobby or something like that, they'll be like, you know, I'm supporting this museum. I don't need, why do I need a membership with this museum? So are you oversaturating, you know, the, the membership, um, it, memberships in your area? So uh, maybe you're going to want to look at something else, Um instead of membership program that might be more uh, beneficial for your museum. So certainly this is not an exhaustive list of pros and cons, and there are a lot of things, like I said, um, that each organization has to figure out on your own. I did also come across, uh, when when doing some reading for this, uh, a good evaluation tool. It was actually off the American Association of Museums website. Um in their uh, in their little information section, there it's information center uh, fact sheet and evaluation tool for membership programs. And it says it's um, it can be uh, it evaluates ten areas and um, it, it defines here the different grades that you would give each one of these areas. And so uh, to get an A under membership acquisition, uh, you would have to have at least three well-developed sources of new members, using direct mail as acquisition tool multiple times a year, using the Internet to attract and sign on new members, projecting the number of new members expected uh, by month, attracting enough new members to grow the program. And then it goes on down, you know, what you would do if you got a B, C, D, and an F. And uh, like I said, there are 10 different areas here. And uh, they say, you know, if you go through this and all the areas you're getting an A or a B, you probably have a pretty healthy membership program. If you get anything less than a B in any one of these areas, it suggests that you need to take a look at that particular area and figure out, you know, what it is that you need to do to get that to a, a B or an A. So I thought this was actually a, a pretty good evaluation tool. And certainly if you have a membership program um, and, you're, and you're thinking, well, all right, maybe it's time to, to check it out and just test the, the health of our membership program, um, it, it is a good tool just to kind of see, see where you're at and see if you need any, see if you need any help, need to change it up a little bit. The American Association of Museums website 
two minutes. Oh gosh, I talked longer than I thought. Okay, um, and then just to leave you, um, kind of with my my first uh, my first experience with memberships. Like I said, I was a year out of graduate school. It was my first full time position. Uh, it was a small uh, historic site, and the membership chair. I'd been there a few months. The membership chair comes to me and and says, "Okay, it's time to do membership." And I'm like, "Great, you know, this is fantastic. We're gonna get started on this." And so she starts on this long and involved process. You know, well, we have to start. We usually do this for six months and we have to, um, we have to, uh, we have to figure out, you know, there was like a rolling system that they had for, for six months about uh, when memberships would come in and, and renewing and all this kind of thing. It was a very complicated system that they had. And I know we had label sticking parties and we had address correction sessions and thank you for renewing cards. And I mean, all this kind of stuff. And it went on and on and on and on. And like I said, you know, I was pretty, I was brand new, you know, so I didn't want to question or test things too much, but I'm thinking in my head, okay, we bring in less than $5,000 a year on this. And you know, what, what are we doing here? What, <laughs> what's going on here? And so I just asked the question, um, why are we doing it this way? You know, could we streamline it a little bit? Are we really making enough money off this? And the answer was, this is how we've always done it. And there's no need to change. Okay, you know, all right, you know, I'll go with that. You know, I'm, I'm new. I'm not going to rock the boat too much. But um, the lifetime membership there, and again, this was 15 years ago, um, was $250. But I mean, if you, that's a lifetime membership. Just think about, you know, all those costs associated with it. They weren't making any money off of this at all. Everything that you went through you, for six months a year, um, you you were going through this process and for less than $5,000. So, but I mean, so that was 15 years ago, um, my experience, but there are still a lot of museums that I work with every day that still are in similar situations. So um, we, it's just something you need to be aware of and be thinking about. And it's just not, I, I don't think that um, you have to have a membership program. Program anymore. I think it's something that you really need to think about. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's different for every organization. It kind of depends on, I guess, how much time, uh, you want to put into it, how big, how big your membership is. Um, and, and if it's, if it's, um, if you have a healthy membership or not. I mean, would you say that you have a successful and healthy membership program? So you went to a rolling or? It's rolling now, and I brought up the question being more efficiency minded. Sure. They said, oh, we tried that, but it didn't work. And I, and I just wondered what we could practice. I, you know, I've seen it done. I, I've seen it. I, there are some uh, organizations I work with that they're just constantly doing memberships all the time. And then there are some, you know, it's just like a, a month or two and you get it all done at one time and then boom, you're done and you don't have to worry about it again for another 10 months. Um, so I, I, I think it's really, you know, what bet works best for your organization. Now, if you're seeing a drop in your membership, um, I'm going to guess that probably the whether it's rolling uh, membership or not, it is not the the reason why it's it's dropping. Um, I would suggest looking at this evaluation tool uh, at AAM on the AAM website and um, and evaluating your membership program because my guess is going to be you're going to find some areas where maybe you're not as healthy as you think you are. Okay, we have um, time one more question. One or two more questions. Anybody else? Thank you.
Well, I have a very sad story to tell you, and I am part of the story, which makes it all the more sad for me. Um, I got a job in a museum with a collection of 100,000 items. That's part of the sad part. I was the only museum staff person. That was also part of the sad part. They had a budget of $200 for collections care. That's the really sad part. So I had to find a way to deal with collections to do 500 items for a dollar. And I decided that was kind of a tricky thing to do. So I did some looking around to see what what you could do that was either cheap or close to cheap. And I um, found some things that were really free that I was able to adapt and uh, really make some use. Um, they had about six or 700 textiles that were on hangers. And you know wire hangers? And they'll cut into the fabric. And actually, some of the items had been hanging for 30 years, and they had slits where their shoulders were. Uh, some of them were on plastic hangers. And you know, some plastic gives off gases, and it turns things colors and does all kinds of bad things. And some of them were on wooden hangers, and some wood gives off acid. So I had all kinds of terrible things happening. Um, and I had 500 of them to do for a dollar, and I didn't have a clue what to do. So I found there were some ways to hang, to make plain old wire hangers a little safer. So the first thing you have to do is find some sheets. You want plain old, plain white sheets. You can get them for free. Every hospital, when they start to get worn, gets rid of them. And they're really soft. Every hotel and motel gets rid of sheets at some point. Now, if you go to a really good hotel, you can get all cotton sheets, which is the best. But if you only have cheap places, you may get a cotton polyester. So go for all cotton if you can get there. If you can't, just get a sheet. And what you want to do is strip the hems off. So you just end up with something with... With no hems, they're all gone. And you know, you can do the cut and rip, because I am not really good with tools, and it gets worse as the story goes on. <laughs> so you just, get, you just get a piece of sheet, and you start to rip it into strips. And you end up with things that look like this. You want to pull the strings off, because the strings could potentially cut, because they're a little sharp. And then... I can't sew either. So I had to come up with a way to do something that was free and didn't involve any sewing and hardly any tools, and not a lot of manual dexterity either. <laughs> so I remember from, you know how they used to cut bandages, and you, they would go like this and then tie them? Okay. If you do that, and take a wire hanger, and tie it right there. There's no sewing, it's now attached. Just cut off the extra, throw it away. And then all you have to do is start to wrap it. When you come to the end, Take the next one, the next strip, 
hold it really tight against the end and keep wrapping. And just keep going all the way along. Well, eventually you can end up with something like this. Now, this one I bent, and I also folded in the ends. You ever tried to find a padded hanger for kids' clothing? It's terrible. I just bent this thing and squished the ends in. And you can make it just about any shape you want. So if you have um, a military costume that's got really wide shoulders, wrap it a lot. If you have a child's one like this, just fold in the ends and keep wrapping it. When you come to the end, because I'm not a sewer, all you do, the last strip, arrange it so it ends here, cut a little strip in it, tie a knot, tie it around the thing, cut out the extra, and you can do this, they're free. Now, if you have volunteers that are trapped at home, senior citizens that are looking for some way to help, show them how to do these, get them a bunch of sheets. Um, you can do about an adult size hanger from one twin sheet. And if you're getting sheets from the hospital, you're gonna end up with twin sheets. When you get the sheets, you wanna wash them. No bleach. No soap that has brighteners or, um, or whiteners in it. So you want cheap soap. And then wash them a second time with just plain water to get as much out of it as you can. It's reasonable, it's free. Another thing you can do that's kind of cool, uh, when you get the sheets, get pillowcases. And cut a little notch right in the middle, and you can slide it right over the hanger, and you now have a dust cover to go with that thing that's totally free. If you have large furniture, you now have big furniture covers. Um, I don't know, the, most of the museums that I worked at, we didn't have dedicated workspace. The banquet tables were also the tables that the kids sat at when they did a field trip. When we do, were doing collections work, that was where we did collections work too. The tables did everything. We'd cover them with sheets. And when we made collections dirt, we just took it home and washed them again. So that way, you know, um, if you get red rot from leather or collections crud that always happens, you can just scoop it off. Works really easily. In your sh in your storage units, when you've opened shelving, I always worked in really old buildings that made dust from nothing. It seemed like um, one of the buildings that I worked in. Every time a truck went by, you could see some. I don't know what it was. We don't know where it came from. We kept looking. And this was a building that had 18 and 20 foot ceilings. So the dust went everywhere. You know, dust falling from 18 feet, it'll fill a room. So we used these over the shelving units as dust covers. And we put Velcro on them and Velcro on the shelves. Really fast, really easy, didn't cost us anything. So we're getting close to 500 items for a buck. We were doing pretty good here. Um, I have one other free idea. Uh, you send out press releases and things by email, right? 
most folks send them just to their area or maybe a county away. Think about sending them another county. It's free for you. It doesn't cost anything more to send them another county. Uh, send them to the big cities that are near you. It doesn't cost anything. If they don't print them, what do you care? Maybe they will. And since it doesn't cost anything, go for it. Um, we did one other thing at the last museum that I was at. We found out who had those electronic signboards, you know, like banks, um, also CVS and Walmart and all those places. We had a special kind of press release thing, and we emailed them to everybody that had one of those. And it was just the basic who, what, when, or where. And the businesses went crazy because it didn't cost them anything, and it showed that they were publicly supporting us, and we got a ton of publicity for nothing. It was great. Well, I left time for questions. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we did leave time for questions, so um, we could also open the floor to questions since we've been through all four speakers. If, if anybody has any other questions that have been brewing and that we haven't been able to answer, we can certainly entertain that. Okay. I don't know, maybe the answer to before I came in, but like newspaper articles and old newspapers, at our museum we have lots of old newspapers that they turn yellow. Yeah. And um, even diaries, we have diaries over 100 years old, and it's black and gold, and we're really not, we've got them at the library now, our library in Fort Wayne, but we want to know what should we do, how should we go about storing the newspapers, and the guys. You can touch it because the ink are never there. Right, it was kind of, it's through papers, it kind of, it's, it's through so many things that it depends, you know, it depends on at what level you're choosing to support those materials, or, you know, check on the records, have they been digitized already? Maybe, you know, maybe there is a microfilm and, you know, other copies that you can provide because if you actually go in and try to conserve those, then you're talking about a lot of, a lot of money. Um, you could, you know, at least store them flat in, you know, Hollinger boxes or boxes from Gaylord. But, you know, the, the inherent vice of cheaply made, machine made paper from wood pulp paper is that it will kind of keep progressing and it will keep deteriorating. So really, it's a matter of, of storage and then finding out, you know, like at what level your institutions can choose to support those materials and what can you do, be it potentially microfilming up to, you know, some very, very high levels, but, of, you know, actual conservation work and care that usually, especially in newspapers, nobody goes to that level. <laughs> so, so, right. I mean, it, and it kind of depends on whether you're talking about individual articles that have been collected that pertain to something that you're interested in, or if you're talking about whole newspaper collections, which is something runs, Yeah, or, I mean, I think, like, you know, definitely like a, a sketchbook or what are you saying, yeah, journals or well, items like that. Well, talking to different things. We have right. diaries in journals when they come to diaries mm -hmm. and books. All black, long, skinny, mm -hmm. into the one like 1920. You know, they're thick, they're big, and red. You know, but then we we had some of them digitized at the library, and we, but you know, people want to read these writers, they look at they can't write, so we had them transcribed too, right? Mm -hmm. Digitized, but then we had people that want to see the actual diary, and we don't want them open them up with the figures, you know, all the stuff on them. But we want to display them there. You know, but 
figure from that, in the same report way, you can see um, Indiana Historical Society has a conservator, and I need to touch with her. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll just show you. Okay, how to store it, and then like, uh, what you want to invest, and that's the thing. Okay, and you know, and, and sometimes I know institutions that, I mean, if you've done that work, digitized, you have transcriptions, and the thing's falling apart. Well, then, not you kind of have to say no sometimes, too. Because if your mission is to preserve that object, and just because everybody wants to touch it, that's just, that's sometimes just a no go thing. Well, now we want it to be the real one. Right, well, then it's displaying care that I'm sure you've got neighbors that can help you. Yeah, Jeff can also probably tell you if the paper, if the newspapers have already been digitized. I know that it's black like, I mean, no, for black people that have right. lived, and they have, we've gone to the library. Oh, okay. And Fort okay. Wayne, Fort Wayne's got like the, one of the largest genealogy libraries in the country. And we've gone, and those newspapers and those articles, they have no knowledge of it. We have to help them with their books to do stuff on black people, because they didn't have it there in Fort Wayne in the early 1900s, so. Let's talk about Okay, okay, thank you. So there was a, was there a comment or something in the back? Uh, yeah. uh, I have maybe a quick follow up question on newspapers. Okay. Uh, in newspapers, but I know they become folded in half. If it's been stored folded in half for 20, 40 years, but it hasn't actually developed hair or anything along the fold lines, is it better to leave it folded? Or would it be, oh, it should, it should be left folded and stored flat? Okay. Um, yeah, I worked in, in the conservation lab at the Historical Society, and we do a lot of humidifying and washing pages. Um, this is it's something that you want to talk to a conservator about because they can they can tell if the paper is still flexible enough to help open slowly, or if they, if they need to be humidified first. Um, because um, as you mentioned, like the photograph, the worst thing to do is just open it and flatten it on your own. It also depends on what you want what you want out of this. So and, and what purpose that newspaper is serving for your organization. So if if you need to display it then then you might need to pursue opening it up because it may not be as interesting. We actually have, uh, in, in our collection at the State Museum, we have the first uh, newspaper that was ever delivered by airmail in Alaska and basically flew over and he threw it out of an airplane. So he flew up from Seattle, flew over, threw it out, flew back. Uh, and that was, it was the New York Times, and we actually have that. Um, but we don't need to have it open. I mean, it's more interesting because it was all wrapped up in a piece of paper anyway that, that he threw it out in. So we had it actually conserved, all sort of rolled up. So that is serving a different purpose. If it's the information that you're interested in, you know, you might be able to find that information um, on, uh, on microfiche or something. So you might be able to get printouts of that newspaper so you wouldn't have to open it. So you have to kind of ask yourself, why, why do we have this newspaper? What is it doing for us? What do we want to do with it? And, and then pursue it from there, I think. Any other questions about anything? I have a comment. Sure. Uh, we have four diaries from the Black community in Indiana. We would like to show those, but we didn't want to show them. We made some copies of the house for the diaries, 
with a hard copy of several of the pages, and that's what we show. And people have been very interested in it, but I thought that was much better than going to show the actual lines. I think that that's an excellent thing. I was actually going to think, thinking about those lines that if you want people to be able to handle it as a diary, as a book, you know, making color copies of it, making kind of a almost a replica of it, uh, is is sometimes something that then they can actually hold on to while they're looking at the actual diary in a case that nobody can touch or that very few people can touch. So giving them that tactile feel and that that color copy is is pretty authentic. So it's much better than just a transcribed page. You know, they can actually see the handwriting and maybe be able to read it along with the transcript. Yeah, so, that's a lot of them. Well, you know, the, the, a grant you know, might pay for having a, having a color copy. I don't know. Maybe which, ones, which ones people most request. Yeah, maybe around really interesting time periods in, in his life or in the life of Fort Wayne or in, you know, around very historic times of the Civil Rights Movement or something. Those might be more interesting ones to start with. And so, you know, use, use and handling guidelines and procedures and having the tools so people could successfully look at them, you know, that they're washing their hands, they're not putting lotion or not putting any goo or disinfectant or whatever, that they're penning there if they are handling pages that usually nowadays people are saying that gloves for handling, especially delicate papers, a little like wearing like Mickey Mouse gloves and trying to do surgery. Like sometimes it does not work that well, but whether they're wearing gloves or not, or having a book cradle so people are not, they're not handling the book, you know, show them how to properly, you know, turn and support a page. Like things like that can go a long way versus, you know, just kind of giving them something and letting them kind of create their own idea of how to properly handle materials. So, I mean, I'm sure you're doing a little bit of that, but, you know, having kind of like a little step-by-step -step guide, um, different institutions have all different levels of types of training or pages that they put out, what to expect when you're approaching an archives or special collections. These are going to be the things that we expect you to do if you are using primary source materials. If you're not willing to do these or you can't, or, you know, then somebody can either help you with it, you know, if you make an appointment, or, you know, don't pen, because if you're not, if you're thinking you're going to take a box and bring it back to a dark corner and do whatever you want, make photocopies and stuff, I mean, I think setting up rules and parameters for people when it comes to those things can uh, go along with. Yeah, I think what Jessica is saying is really true. If, if, if you really want to preserve these things, having a, sort of a preservation plan specifically for these diaries, I think would be very good. You'd say, these, this is what what we're planning to do in order to preserve this for as long as, as you're, whatever you are, if you're a 501c3 and these diaries are in the public trust, then you have public trust duties to preserve them in perpetuity. So in perpetuity, as we all know, is a very long time. It's longer than us. So if you re are really serious about it, you do need to set up the parameters. We are, we got a grant for it. That's why I'm here. Yeah. I mean, because we, did, we do have money yeah. for preserving them. I mean, I'm sure people there in Fort Wayne know, you know, some, like some of the things we've been making, they're gone now, but, you know, know what to do with the history of well, even if you were to just to write down and articulate, this is Jessica said, sort of a plan for these. So, you know, that you're trying to preserve them in perpetuity, that these are the handling guides, or these are the requirements that we have in order to preserve these, because our goal is, you know, forever. If, if, if that wasn't your goal, um, if, if they were to be used by the community, and if, if, you know, in 30 years, if they were destroyed, if that was okay, then you would have a different plan. But... 
and having those plans gives you some credibility when somebody comes in and says, that was my father's diary, I should be able to handle it and do whatever I want with it, you know, or it's, it's kind of mine versus it's, you know, your institutions, and it gives you kind of a neutral ground to, to stand your ground and to say, you know, these are the why, this is why we have these policies and procedures, you know, because they are written, they're available on our website, they are for everybody, you know, and this is why we are prescribing to these rules and how we treat them. Sir. Well, thank you very much for giving around the applause.